morning, we know. Morning. Well, just two verses for this morning as we continue in our series in uh, the epistle uh, to the Romans. Last week, uh, we began our series in uh, the book of Romans. We uh, studied verses 1 through 15, and there we saw uh, Paul's devotion to the Gentiles. We saw it expressed in his longing to be with them so that, that they could have this obedience of faith. We saw that it was more than just preaching and just seeing conversion, but actually being with them so that, that their lives produce this gospel fruit. And we were challenged that when we view this gospel proclamation, it's not just a one-time message, but it's living with one another. It's suffering together. It's challenging one another so that there can be this obedience of faith. And not only that, Paul does it joyfully. He sees this obligation not as a forced one, but one that he can have full joy as he serves our Lord. And so we see that in verse 15. He concludes, Therefore, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. So now we see Paul's intent is made clear. He is eager to preach the gospel And the reason why he's eager, because he believes that in this gospel, there is a a power, this power of the gospel that's enabling him to be so bold and confident in preaching this gospel message. You know, one time, a church father, a long time ago, Theodoret, he once likened the gospel to, to a pepper, a very peculiar image. But he said, a pepper, at first, it's cold to your senses. You can't really assume much from it. But once you bite into a pepper and all of its juices come between your teeth, this is how he wrote, you immediately see the effects of the power. And likewise for us, perhaps you're here today, you heard about the gospel, you hear about how so many people believe in it, but maybe you firsthandedly never experienced the power of the gospel. Because understanding this power, that's what's going to enable us to be so bold, to be courageous, to actually live this obedience of faith, not only in our lives, but to bring that about in others around us. So we're going to study this power of the gospel in two headings. The first, God's righteousness, which begins in faith. God's righteousness that begins in faith, and secondly, God's righteousness that continues in faith, that continues. So under the overall heading of God's righteousness, one that begins in faith and continues in faith, and afterwards, we'll uh, go over a quick application. So with that introduction, uh, let's bow our heads one more time and ask God for his help as we look into his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you asking for your help. Lord, even though we know that this power of the gospel is true, perhaps in our minds, but maybe for some of us here today, we have yet to experience its power, its saving power in our lives. God, and we know that only your Holy Spirit can do that in our hearts. We pray for that through your word, through your presence. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as mentioned last week, we we, we mentioned that this book of the Romans was a very important one 
to a lot of the figures in church history, one being Martin Luther. And specifically, these two verses, these are the two verses that he came across which literally sparked the Reformation. And we have much to credit these two verses. And I think he's right in seeing the power and the impact of these two verses. A lot of the scholars, they say that the whole book of Romans can be uh, summed up in these two verses. It is the, the summary statement of the gospel. And in doing so, Martin Luther, he once wrote about how every one of us, all of us are living under a kind of righteousness, some standard of righteousness. And even though he wrote about this hundreds of years ago, I think it's still true for many of us today that all of us, that we're abiding by some kind of standard. And he lists a few. So as I list them, think about which one that you tend to abide in. The first, he calls a political or a civil righteousness. A political or civil righteousness. And this is what the world leaders, the diplomats, the officials, and, and the politicians teach. It's for those who have a strong conviction in, in, in politics and in the way that the government runs. He says for some, there's a social righteousness, which is how you act, how you speak, and how you dress, how you carry yourself according to the ways, maybe the traditions of our nation or your family or particular culture. It's what our parents and our families and our schools teach us. And so we abide by this social standard. Next, he lists the moral or the ethical righteousness, which is what you believe to be right, the right actions to take in any given situation. And as an aside, a lot of the times, this is what people think Christianity is about. Your moral and ethical standards, how you live, that determines your Christianity. So if you are good, if you do acts of kindness, that's what determines your uh, religion. Or even perhaps the way that you are devoted or committed to the church, the way that you do your spiritual disciplines, prayer, reading scripture, the way you serve the church. Perhaps some live according to this standard of righteousness. A couple more, he says there's a relational righteousness. That you determine your life's worth and value based on the relationships you have and how they see you, whether it be a close person or whether it be a group of people. And what they say, what they think about you, sometimes it might bother you or sometimes it may make you too ecstatic. And you put so much worth into those relationships. That's a relational righteousness. And finally... He says there's a righteousness of achievement that comes from some kind of standard of success that you may have for yourself. And the indicators of that standard of righteousness are determined by your salary, your title, your possessions, your family life. And so you use those indicators to determine if you are successful or not. So we have all of these standards, all of these standards of righteousness that we live by. And he wrote this hundreds of years ago, and it's amazing how true that is even today. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we all operate on one or maybe a few of these. I think the quickest way uh, to see if you are operating under these standards is this question. Have you ever looked down on anyone else? Whether it be a political figure, whether it be somebody who's very close to you, your spouse, your closest friends, because if you do, 
then you're operating on some kind of standard that you're standing on, but this person is not living up to. That reveals that you have innate within you this standard that you are living off of, whether it be political, relational, or one of success. And the more often that we look down and we compare and we operate on these standards, we do not know and pay attention to the standard that God has for us God's standard of righteousness. C.S. Lewis once said, a proud man is always looking down on others. And as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. If we're operating on these standards, then we don't take much time to see the standards that God has impressed upon us. And I believe that is a very crucial moment for the Christian and will be a crucial moment for any of those who have yet to place their trust in Jesus Christ. It's the deciding factor. You know, we can talk about the good news, forgiveness, God's glory and God's mercy, God's provision, all we want. But unless you first come to terms that there is a standard of righteousness that God wants you to live by, all of that does not matter. You can grow up in the church, gone to all the Sunday school classes, been a faithful servant of the church. But if you never came to terms, this idea, this consciousness of God's righteousness, the standard that he wants us to live by, we will never appreciate the power of this pepper gospel. And that's the challenge I want us to have this morning. Have you ever encountered, have you ever came to terms that there is a standard of righteousness that God has for you? Nevertheless, all of us, we are going to come to that awareness sooner or later. You know, if you ever were unfortunate enough to be with somebody in their last dying days, you know what happens in their minds. They frantically search. They look back onto their lives and try to make meaning and sense of it. And they look at all of the things that they've done all of the ways that they lived according to their own standard, whether it be success or relational or political or moral, and they try to come to terms with that. But sooner or later, they're going to come to terms in their hearts that there is a standard of God's righteousness that's going to trump all those other things. And you will be frantic. But I pray that for all of us, that it's not on our hospital bed that we consider the standard of God's righteousness that he has upon you, but that we consider that this morning. I pray that that standard will be impressed onto our hearts, because only then will we encounter the power of the gospel. You know, when Luther, he read about this power of the gospel, he had to go through a very difficult ordeal. He was a monk. He was perfect in all the ways that he performed his religious duties. But it wasn't until the day that he saw the standard of God's righteousness. Only then did he appreciate the power of the gospel. Later on, we're going to read in Romans chapter 8 about the righteous requirement of the law that is impressed on us. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, it reads, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear him, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, 
To serve the Lord, your God, with all of your heart and with all of your soul and to keep the commands and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Have you come to terms with that? Do you believe that? That there is a standard that God wants us to live by. And you can be the most reputable Christian. You can be the kindest soul in the world. You can be the most devoted servant of God. But unless you come to terms with that, you'll never embrace this power. You know, Luther, he read those words, the righteousness of God in our passage. And those three words, those are the words that he just couldn't get over. It was like an obstacle for him because in his mind, when he thought about God's righteousness, he thought about the righteousness that God displays when he punishes the wicked, when he punishes the sinful. That's how he read the Bible. And it's true. If you look in all the scripture, there are incidences where God's righteousness is displayed in the justice he executes. Psalm 97, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him, burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. So every time Luther, he saw those words, righteousness of God, he had this fear. He even said that he hated God. Because when he saw God's judgment, he didn't think it was for those people out there, but he himself included as amongst them. Him standing in front of God on that day. And when God asked him that question, have you lived according to the standards that I have placed upon you? And that made him so afraid. He writes in his journal, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness is whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assault him. Therefore, I did not love a righteous God. I did not love an angry God, but I hated and I murmured against him. Maybe that's how you feel. You feel like God is not good. He's not loving, that he's some tyrant. And especially when we think about the standard of living that he has for us, maybe your view of God is one of hate and bitterness. And every time that we come across with the way that we're supposed to love others or to obey we do it begrudgingly. We are jaded. That's how Luther obeyed. And he had this fear. The first time he ministered the sacraments, he was deathly afraid. His hands were shaking because in his mind he was touching the body of Christ, touching the blood of Christ. And in his mind he was thinking, how can I touch something so holy and perfect? He trembled every time he prayed, knowing about his lifestyle, his thoughts. How can God up there listen to me knowing that I have no right to stand before him every single time? And perhaps that's how you feel every time you come to church. You sing and read about these words, but that doesn't reflect the way you feel. Maybe God is distant. 
Maybe if he's close, he's not loving. He's one that creates bitterness. How do you view God? That's very important. Very important the way that you see this gospel. What thoughts, what images conjure up in your mind when you think of him? How would you describe him? Holy, set apart, which is true. But there's no word that can encapsulate who God is. As great of a word as holy is, as great of a word as set apart is, nothing defines him perfectly. The best way this scholar wrote to describe God is to define God as God. Because any other word somehow limits him. There's nothing that you can do. He's not just a better version of us. He's not some kind of image that we can conjure up in our mind. He's completely other. He says he's self-existing. He doesn't need our words for him to be God. He doesn't need our worship for him to be holy and to be worthy. And that kind of God has that kind of righteousness that he wants us to live by. And if we don't get that into our minds and into our hearts, we will never taste the beauty of this gospel. Have you ever came to those moments? to just stand amazed at the standard that God has for us. And after that, then you'll come to see just how powerful this gospel is. David Brainer, he was a missionary uh, to the indigenous people in our area a long time ago in the colonial times. And he went to seminary. He did much good work planting churches, infirmaries, and schools. But it wasn't until later that he came to understand just the beauty of this gospel. He writes once in his journal, the more I tried to love God with my soul, the more I saw how little I really loved him. Does that sound like you? I'm trying to love, but in actuality, there isn't much here. He says, the more I sought a soft heart, the more I thought how hard my heart was. And I suppose it must be softened before Christ would accept me. And he writes, one night I remember in particular when I was walking alone and I had opened such a view of my sin that I feared the ground would cleave asunder under my feet and become my grave. And I saw it was impossible for me after the utmost pains to answer to the demands of God's law. I saw it condemned me for selfish and angry and fearful and envious and lustful thoughts, which I could not possibly prevent. After that moment, experience the power of the gospel. I'm convinced I'm fairly convinced that to experience and to understand this power of the gospel, you have to first come to terms with the righteous demands that God has for you and your inability to meet those demands, for you to have a sober and honest view of your sin. We need to come to terms with the righteousness of God. And as Luther As he struggled without those words, he came to those final words we read in our passage, that the righteous shall live by faith. And it changed his whole life. And he came to understand that when Paul's writing about the righteousness of God, he's not talking about God's punitive righteousness, the way that he punishes the wicked. But here, 
He's talking about the righteousness of God that is conferred onto us by faith. God's righteousness, that perfect, holy, set-apart righteousness is yours by faith. That's what Paul means by the righteous shall live by faith. He continues to write Luther. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and that statement, the righteous one shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through sheer grace and mercy God justifies us by faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise and the whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. Whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me an inexpressibly sweet and greater love. I'm convinced that many of us aren't aware of this standard of God's righteousness that is impressed upon all of us. And I hope and pray that this impression will leave a mark into our hearts, not to leave us in that, but so that these doors of paradise of the gospel will be opened before your eyes. So my challenge to you is, do you have a right view of God this morning? Do you have the right view of the standards that he has placed upon you? And do you have faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that his Perfect righteousness is declared upon you, conferred onto you by faith. No longer do you need to fear. No longer do you need to murmur against God. But your righteousness is completely redefined. One of my favorite catechism questions come from the Heidelberg Catechism, question number 60. And as I read and I answer the question, I want all of us to take a minute, and for those who can, to affirm these words into our hearts. The question asks, how are you right with God? How are you right with God this morning? And the answer goes, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against God's commandments, and of never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned before as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Jesus was obedient for me. And all I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart by faith. I love that question and answer. First, we need to understand that our righteousness begins in faith, and it's God's righteousness that's given unto us to understand this power of the gospel. Second point, God's righteousness not only begins in faith, but it continues in faith. Now, for some of us uh, who were around in the 80s and 90s, a very common question to ask if someone was a Christian or not was this question, are you saved? 
I think it came from the Billy Graham era. And the assumption to that question is that you need to be saved from something, right? If you are saved, you have to be saved from something. And what is that? We see hints of that in verse 18, the wrath of God that comes upon the disobedient, the rebellious, the wicked. Jesus himself declared, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goat. He will place the sheep on his right and the goat on his left. And for those not counted as belonging to Jesus Christ, they will be thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. So what are you saved from? It's the judgment of God. But I think the way that question is, is, uh, is proposed is slightly misleading because it's not a past event. It's not, are you saved? The question is, will you be saved when that day comes, when Christ will separate the sheep from the goat? Because that salvation is not a one-time past event but it's exercised to its fullness until it brings to a completion on that final day. We can see it in our passage in verse 16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation or onto salvation. It will be. We also see that it's administered to us, to everyone who believes. And that word believes is in the present form, the continuative form. Meaning, for those who are believing continuously until that day of salvation comes. And this tells us that that initial work of faith that God has performed in us, it will continue and express itself until that final day of salvation. The righteous shall live by faith, from faith, for faith. Do you see the connection? That initial faith that you may have in the gospel, if it is a genuine faith, it will be continued to be expressed the rest of your life until that final day when the fullness of that salvation comes to take you home. Paul's quoting from the Old Testament, the prophet Habakkuk, where it says, the righteous shall live by faith. And in that prophecy, it's a story about how Habakkuk, he's having this conversation with God, and the situation is the whole nation of Israel, they're rebelling against God, and they're going to receive God's judgment. And God, he does so by raising up the Babylonians to come down and to punish them. Now, in light of that impending doom, that coming judgment, God tells Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Until that day comes, knowing that there is a future judgment that is stored up for our sins, until then, we will live by faith continually. That faith will continue to be expressed the rest of our lives. It's not a one-time act, this faith, but it's continued day to day as we trust in him. We must continue to live by faith. Suppose 
there's a group of, of Navy sailors. And say that they're in war. And through these mishaps, that they're stranded on this island. And after a few days of just trying to survive on this island, a miraculous thing happened. This, this abandoned ship comes ashore. And at first they inspect the ship to make sure it's okay. They do some repairs on it. And then eventually they decide to set sail. And before they set sail, they have to what? Have faith in the ship that it will not sink, right? They need to have that initial faith in the ship that it won't drown them. But say that they set out and in a couple of days that there's this storm and it's rocking the boat and water's coming on and it's shaking, and it's making everyone afraid, then they need to have this additional faith. Faith in what? That the boat, that it will not break, that it will be durable. But while they have this next faith in the ship's durability, does their initial faith in its ability to float go away? No, it still stands. But there's an additional faith that is required of them. Say that a few days later, they encounter enemy ships. And they have to fight those enemies with these cannons. They have to have an extra faith in the cannons that is going to protect them. But at the same time, does their faith in the ship's ability to float, does that waver? No, it still stays the same. But throughout the whole ordeal, until they make it across, God continues to exercise their faith in them. And that's like us. Not once do we forego or abandon this initial faith in the gospel, but at the same time, God is growing and working in us. That same faith, that genuine faith, the righteous shall live by faith until the day of salvation. That's our lives. And I think a lot of us, we separate that. Or if I ask you the question, are you saved? Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, that he died for my sins and that I have eternity with him and that I will be resurrected. But that same kind of confidence, can I ask you, do you have faith in the way that God's going to use you tomorrow morning? It's the same. The same faith that is exercised. And some, for some reason, we have a lot of confidence in this initial faith, but we get Weary and jaded about the faith that God wants to express in you, in your broken marriages, in your hard times at work, in your struggles at school. Why would we separate it? It is from faith to faith. The righteous shall live by faith. You don't start with faith and then finish by your own works. You start with it and you end with it till he brings you home. John Stott writes, those who are righteous by faith also live by faith. Having begun in faith, they continue in the same path. It's not an isolated, one-time act for the believer. Yes, it does start when we first receive God's righteousness, but that same faith continues for the rest of our lives when things don't make sense in life. We have faith in God that he works all things for your good and his glory when it doesn't feel like there's any purpose to your life and it's just so mundane, you have faith that everything you do, whether you eat, drink, or work, whatever you do, you do it heartily for the glory of God, and it does matter. When you feel like you're abandoned and no one is there for you and you're crying out, you have faith that God will never forsake you and he is with you. It's the same faith, brothers and sisters. We live by faith. So how is your faith 
this morning? Do you believe and trust in God's goodness? And whatever you're facing now, the same faith that you have in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the same power that raised him from the dead, being the same power that is in us now through the Holy Spirit. And how is your faith exercised? One example is prayer. That's a very tangible way that we exercise our faith because to the non-believer, they see us in our rooms, on our knees, saying these things coming out of our mouths, wasting our time. But to us, we express our prayers because in faith we believe God hears us and he answers us. Perhaps there is a disconnect in our lives. Faith is exemplified in our obedience, in our commitment to him. Whether it be to to patiently love someone who's annoying you or to forgive somebody who's hard to forgive. John Bradford, a long time ago, Puritan, he once wrote, give yourself to obedience, although you do it not with such feeling as you desire. Faith must first go before, and then feeling will follow. I trust that this is what God wants. I have faith that God is here and he will never forsake me as I enter my workplace. From faith to faith, and until that day of salvation, God will keep your faith guarded for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time, 1 Peter chapter 1. So what is your faith in? to be declared righteous in front of God. It's your faith in Christ and his righteousness that is conferred unto you. And likewise, and just as important, what is your faith in to continue living out your life day by day? It's your faith in Christ who will never forsake you and always supply you with the Holy Spirit to strengthen you as he intercedes for you in heaven. Let us not separate the two. I just want to end with a final application And it's just this question. Are you ashamed of this gospel? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Knowing that, that this is the power of God, especially in the righteousness that is revealed through our faith. Paul declares, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And it's knowing verse 17 about God's righteousness that enables Paul to say in verse 16, I'm not ashamed. And likewise, truly understanding God's righteousness, this power, that's what's going to enable you to not be ashamed. That's what's going to enable you to be bold and to obey in faith. Paul was writing probably to the most influential and most powerful city in the world at that time. He was writing to those who were in Rome, the most talented, the most gifted intellectuals, the most powerful politicians. You know, one historian writes that for the Roman legions, they marched across the entire empire, but all the roads led back to Rome. For Rome was the single central city that represented power. It was the center of the world. And even Paul, when he visited all these surrounding cities like Corinth and Ephesus and Macedonia, he was reminded of Rome. But yet in light of that, he's not ashamed of the gospel. He writes, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, even more powerful than Rome, even more powerful than whatever is in your life right now. 
And he's not ashamed. Once we understand and experience this kind of power, that is what will enable you to live out your life in obedience of faith. And if you don't see this eagerness, this confidence, this boldness, even as you go to work tomorrow morning, then go back to the beginning and see and ask that question. Do I truly understand this power? That's the connection that Paul's making between these two verses. If you believe in this power, you will live like this. So for us, if we don't live like this, if we examine our lives, it's not like the way that he's describing. Let's go back to verse 17 and ask, do you have the power of the gospel in you, this righteousness conferred? This righteousness that's displayed in faith. And this connection is important for us because for the past few months, we've been preaching through the book of Acts. And the theme was this outward expansion to be bold and to share and proclaim the gospel to those around us. And you thought we might have been taking a break from that, but as soon as we go to the Romans, we see the same thing. (laughs) To be bold, to share, proclaim the gospel around us to those close to us and to those far from us. But perhaps you're sitting here and saying, you know, I heard that time and time again. I know it's true. But then let me ask you, are you eager to do it? Because that's what Paul is. And if you're not eager to do it, then perhaps you haven't experienced the full power of the gospel in your life. Because that's the connection he makes. And that's the litmus test. If you find in yourself a desire that is anything less than this boldness, this confidence, then we haven't truly understood the power of God's righteousness in our lives. Is there an earnest desire to proclaim it, to exhibit it, to share it, to embody it in my acts of love, indeed, to verbalize it even to the people who don't know Christ? Is there that earnest desire? Maybe we are ashamed. Tim Keller says, there's a lot of reasons why we might be ashamed of the gospel today. Because we're afraid that people are going to be offended. Offended that the salvation is free. That it's not paid for by anything that they do. And all their lives, they're operating on this standard that they have to work for something. They're offended. Maybe they're offended because the gospel says that you are sinful and you are wicked, born in sin. Perhaps they're offended because no matter what good you do in the world, it will never be enough to satisfy God's standard of righteousness. Maybe they're offended because the way of the cross, the way that this salvation was accomplished was by suffering, humility, and death of Jesus Christ. And they don't want to live a life like that. Maybe there are reasons why we're ashamed. And furthermore, maybe we're ashamed not trusting in God's power every day not thinking that it will actually work in our lives and enable us to create this joy, create this power. And therefore, we don't come to God in prayer. We don't depend on him. Perhaps you and I, we are ashamed. Maybe our faith in the gospel has weakened. Got to have faith in this power. Faith that in Christ you will be able to live one day to the next. You will endure and persevere, never being ashamed of the offense that this gospel brings. Why? Because Jesus, he never was ashamed of us. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that he was not ashamed to call us our brothers, his brothers and sisters, and he will tell of our name, of God's name amidst the congregation. He will sing praise. Not once was he ashamed of us. He didn't try to hide our sins on that cross. 
It was displayed for the powers in the world to see that it was our sins. That's the power of the gospel. I'll end with this anecdote. And I think it really exemplifies this, this importance in believing this power. My professor, he's originally from Dallas, and he moved uh, to Philadelphia. And it was the first time he said he encountered so much snow. He never had so much snow in his life. And when it got to be over a foot of snow, he was completely unprepared. I think he had those kind of, you know, put-together shovels, plastic ones in the back of his trunk. And it took him so long to shovel his driveway. He said it was a miserable experience. His back was in pain. It took forever. I see some of your faces grimacing right now. And he said he would always complain how he hated this state, how he hated Pennsylvania because of the snow, and specifically because of the way he had to shovel his driveway. So every time his wife would ask him to shovel his driveway, he would resist to the death until one day he went to Home Depot and he saw a special for this thing called a snowblower. And it was on sale and he bought it. And to his surprise, it took him 10 minutes to shovel his driveway. And now he can't wait till it snows. Because <laughs> something with guys and men and having something powerful in your hands, he enjoys it. He has joy shoveling the snow. Did the snow change? Did his driveway change? No. But the power changed. And knowing that power enables you to encounter whatever foot of snow that might come in your life with this joy. I can't wait for the power of God to be displayed tomorrow morning in the way that I will be patient to that worker next to me, the way that I will pray for my boss, the way that I'll be patient with my children and pray for them. can't wait because I have this power of the gospel. And you will see the joy. You will see the joy. So let's live by that faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Here at 